Friends, and now for something completely different. Well, not completely, but a bit. Today's going to be a little different, okay? Look at that. It's official. Uh, Sometimes I think there are times in a church's life where certain themes need to be spoken to and talked about. Timely things, right? So today, you know what we're going to talk about? Worship. We're going to talk about worship, okay? If you were at an annual meeting a couple weeks ago, I spoke about our big picture mission as a church. We talked about shared love, shared life, shared mission. Any, and those were like three interlocking circles. You remember that? What was at the middle of that, those three interlocking circles? Anybody remember? Hey, there we go. Nice. I, gave you, I did kind of give you a heads up, but well done still. Worship. Uh, worship, uh, there are several forms for that word in the Old Testament alone that are uh, exhort us to worship. Uh, when you put them all together as a sum total, they outnumber any other command in the Old Testament. So worship is a big deal. Without worship, we lose touch with any sense of true ultimate reality. Okay? Worship is like our true north. It's our plumb line. So to, to go back to shared love, shared life, shared mission, without worship... True worship of the Lord, that, thing, that stuff just falls apart. It just falls apart. Worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth, as the scriptures say, is something we're to be all about, okay? So we're going to talk about worship today, which by default means liturgy, which I love, so that's kind of cool, but we'll get to that later. Okay. For starters, uh, I want to, if I can, sort of set our priorities in order. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, let me get our priorities in order. We are Christians... We worship in the Anglican tradition, in that order. We are not Anglican Christians, okay? You tracking my meaning? We are Christians who worship in the Anglican tradition. There are other Christians. There are other brothers and sisters in Christ worshiping in other traditions. So let us not be too arrogant or assume that we're the only game in town or that we're the only folks that get it right with worship, as if we know the right way and the best way And that's it. We need a measure of humility. The Holy Spirit is at work in many other places, contexts, traditions, denominations. Thanks be to God. Okay? It's a good thing. But today, we're going to look at our tradition. We're going to look at the Anglican tradition and the strengths, the distinctives that Anglicanism brings to the table regarding worship. We're going to explore questions like, you know, how do Anglicans worship? Uh, Why do we use a liturgy? Why do we follow a liturgical format? Basically, kind of, why do we do what we do? Every Sunday, why do we do what we do? Now, some of you know the answers to these questions. And yet, I think it's still helpful to refresh and remember sort of the big why behind why we do what we do. Okay, bam, we're on the right slide. Excellent. My core conviction, you simply can't find a better or more effective spiritual formation tool than worship. You can't. Uh, I'm going to throw some Latin at you, or rather inflict some Latin on you this early in the morning. Probably not fair, but I'm going to do it anyway. So lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. Uh, What this means, loosely translated, is as we pray, or as we worship, so we believe, so we live. As we pray or worship, so we believe, so we live. Now, originally, the first part of this was just lex orandi, lex credendi. That's from St. Prosper. He was a 5th century disciple of Augustine. Okay? But this establishes a relationship. How we worship is profoundly important. (laughs) 
it shapes our belief, and that then shapes how we live out in the world. So let me give an example. This might blow your mind. I thought this was wonderful and staggering when I came upon this bit of data. So in the early church, before there was a common creed, that took a little time to form, before there was a biblical canon, right, the scriptures, before that was fully formed and sanctioned, if you will, how did the church disciple its people? The liturgy. <laughs> the liturgy. That is how it happened. Worship was the profound and primary method of forming little Christs, okay? And it's still our means of spiritual formation and disciple-making today. There is a power of worship to shape hearts and minds and souls, and I, I still think that's true. But think about that. The early church, they didn't have the scriptures. They had bits and pieces. They didn't have the creeds. They had bits and pieces. What they had was the liturgy, and that is what discipled folks. So, um, as we pray worship so we believe so we live okay you can drop that on somebody at starbucks later later in the day and watch them their head just turn around say hey yeah alexa randy likes Cranny, likes vivendi say what that's fine let's go to the next slide okay so as anglicans we generally worship through the ministry of word and sacrament word and sacrament are like <clears throat> excuse me the basic building blocks of our sunday morning liturgy i think you can probably see that but i'm going to break it down as we talk through this there's the word portion if you will, that's kind of the first half of our liturgy. It begins with that opening hymn. It goes all the way until the peace. And the word includes, uh, it's kind of this preparing of our hearts to hear the word of God. Okay, uh, Songs, collects, uh, we say prayers, uh, scriptures are read, uh, proclamation occurs, hopefully, in preaching, and so on. That's the word piece. So that's one piece of how we worship. Second part is sacrament. Okay? That's what our service focuses on. Uh, you might call it communion. You might call it the Eucharist. Uh, you might call it the Lord's Supper. The second portion of our service, the sacrament portion, begins with the offertory and extends through the end of the service. And while there are a lot of different definitions for sacrament, some of them quite long, um, the simplest I'm going to give you is this. Sacrament is a visible word. Visible word. Or in the case of the Eucharist, uh, an edible, tasteable, touchable, visible word word. <clears throat> Thomas Cranmer, the architect of the original Book of Common Prayer, had this to say about word and sacrament. And this kind of ties it together for you. I hope this makes sense. Listen to this. I'll read it twice in case you miss it. For as the word of God preached, okay, putteth Christ into our ears, so likewise these elements of water, bread, and wine joined to God's word do after a sacramental manner put Christ into our eyes, our mouths, our hands, into all our senses. Does that make sense? Tracking? I'm going to read it again. I saw, I didn't get that, Father Joel, so I'm going to read it again. For as the word of God preached, putteth Christ into our ears, so likewise these elements of water, bread, and wine, joined to God's word, do after a sacramental manner put Christ into our eyes, mouths, hands, and all our senses. Okay? So the ministry of word and sacrament both serve to feed us. Okay? They feed us. Notice how they synergistically work together. They perfectly complement one another. They perfectly reinforce one another. That's why we tend to hold word and sacrament together. And some of that comes from the abuses and imbalances within the Roman Catholic Church during the Reformation, where the sacraments were sometimes practiced, often erroneously, with no proclamation of the word. So we're trying to get a fullness here. We tend to hold word and sacrament together. The primacy of the word, 
There's no communion without proclamation in a service of ours. You'll, you'll notice that. We tend to hold them together, okay? Primacy of the word, no communion without proclamation, and our liturgy builds towards communion as the high point. So word and sacrament, there's balance there, and they're the basic building blocks of our liturgy together. Joel, I think we're ready for next. Yeah, liturgy. Speaking of liturgy, I'm so glad you asked. Liturgy, I'm going to inflict you, I think, with some more Latin, comes from the word liturgos. And what it means is the work of the people. Who's heard that phrase before? Like liturgy, work of the people. Okay, a few of you. Good, good. This is a wonderful uh, connotation that we probably don't talk about enough. One, liturgy assumes the priesthood of all believers. It, it means worship is a communal affair. All of us participate. Everyone here is a minister in some way, shape, or form, though we have different roles. So they're really, it's a mistake for us to call you, and I need to correct this even in our church vernacular. It's a mistake to call any of you volunteers. <laughs> you're not volunteers. Uh, you're all Levites. You're all ministering in some way, shape, or form and participating in this ministry and in this liturgy. So it's not just the minister ministers and the congregation congregates. Bishop David told us that uh, last weekend, and it's true. That's, that's not what it is, okay? We're all doing this together, okay? So God inhabiting the praises of his people. This is the body of Jesus in action uh, right here. But there's another layer of this work of the people, this liturgy that I think is really cool. Let me give you the meaning of liturgos, just to give you a bit of the connotation. What this originally meant, liturgy was a public work that something was done, but at a private cost, okay? Public work, private cost. It might mean building a bridge. It might be doing military service at your own expense. Think of what you're supposed to do when you're called to public office. You serve, right? You're doing this work on behalf of someone else. So in other words, liturgy, this is the work of a small group of people done on behalf of the greater good of society at large, the work of the people is done on and on behalf of and for the good of those outside of our group. So there is some mission for you. How cool is that? Our worship, think of the work of the church. We're the liturgy for the world. We're the liturgy for the world. Liturgy done, as one author puts it, for the life of the world. William Temple, you've heard me quote this before, I bet. Uh, Archbishop of Canterbury during World War II said this. The church is the only society on earth that exists for those who are not yet members. That's why we're here. Mission focus. The liturgy has an inborn missional thrust to it. Okay? Now, let's be clear. Um, every church has a liturgy, right? Think of it this way. Every church has some form of worship. They really do. Uh, the question is, you know, are, are they intentional about it? Are they biblical about it? Kind of how, how they go through that. So, um, in some evangelical churches, the liturgy goes something like this. There's the welcome, there's the worship set, there's a sermon, and there's a closing set, right? And the two big pieces tend to be music and sermon in those certain contexts. Those are the like essentials. They're kind of like our word and sacrament. Now, here's what's interesting. Even in more spontaneous, like charismatic holiness traditions, guess what? They still got a liturgy. They still have a form of worship. So... Uh, it isn't just sacramental churches that have a liturgy. 
Every church has a liturgy. The question for me is always, what is the work of the people about at that church? Is it biblical? Is it intentional? Is it, you know, all these things. So every church has a liturgy. We aren't the only liturgical church. Every church has a liturgy. Now, uh, third point, our liturgy has profound biblical roots and moorings. I want to tell you a bit about that. Now, you ever notice how much scripture is in our liturgy? Yeah, some of you are nodding, okay? There's a lot of scripture. There's a lot of scriptural themes. There's a lot of ideals, scriptural ideals. I mean, it's really grounded in the word of God. It is evangelical in the historical sense. Let me give you some examples. Um, early church worship, it was actually influenced by their Old Testament Jewish forebears. There's a lot that comes from Leviticus that's in part of our worship. Jesus recast the Passover meal as food and drink of the new covenant. Okay? Many early Eucharistic prayers were borrowed from Jewish liturgies, right? Stuff being carried forward. Stuff from Justin Martyr's writing, the Didache, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. It's all there. And the shape of the liturgy that we have is largely unchanged. The word portion, that's actually tied to just early synagogue worship. Uh, the Eucharist is drawn from the Passover. So our liturgy has Old Testament and New Testament roots in it. Anglicanism also celebrates... Point four, the wisdom of church tradition. This is what Cranmer called the primitive, the primitive. The things that the church, we've learned a few things over the centuries, haven't we? I hope so. I mean, we've had a couple of millennia to work at it. The church has learned a few things. There's some wisdom out there, actually. So Cranmer's goal, at least for the Book of Common Prayer and for his vision for worship, was to uphold scripture and to honor the tradition, the primitive of the church, but in that order, right? Okay, the traditions of the church, he believed that the Holy Spirit was actually active in the life of the church throughout the ages. So we honor both scripture and tradition in that order. Okay, you're on it, brother. Well done. All right, good on you. Now, our liturgy has a certain shape to it. You might have noticed this. And you'll see this, actually, the same shape if you look at clo you to look closely. If you look at Roman Catholic liturgy, very similar shape. You look at an Eastern Orthodox liturgy, very similar shape. So our liturgy has a certain shape to it. There's a four-fold pattern of gathering, the word, the table, and sending. So there are movements within the liturgy, like in a symphony or like in a poem, right? There's repetition, there's cadence, there's build, there's call and response, there's a rhythm to it. And good liturgy is like a journey we get to take together. Hopefully, when you come in here on a Sunday morning, when you leave, man, I hope you're in a different place. <laughs> I hope you don't just leave and go, well, ho-hum, kind of where I was when I came here. I hope, I hope God actually interacted with you and met you in and through the praises of his people. So, we come, the shape, we gather together. Let me talk about that. If you're in a higher church setting, there might be a procession that happens, okay? There's the opening sentences, opening hymn. We did that this morning. There's the collect for purity, right? It goes back to Psalm 51. And the whole point is gathering thing. It's like, we're getting ready. We're preparing to hear from the word of God, okay? We're asking God to prepare us, his Holy Spirit to prepare us. Help, help us. <laughs> so it gives us some time to sort of walk into this thing, kind of wade into the water, if you will. Then we get to the word, okay? There's things like the hearing of the word. So that's where the scripture is read. The proclamation of the word, the sermon. Then we respond to the word. That comes in the creed, the prayers of the people, the confession, the absolution, 
and the peace. So that's the word. And I think you know I mean the word of God there, right? Then we move towards the high point, the table. The table. Offertory begins this piece. And again, this is the, if this is a symphony, this is the crescendo, okay? The Eucharist is the crescendo. Everything's building towards this. And then towards the very end, a, a small but necessary part, the sending. That's when you're blessed, offer a blessing, and then you're sent out. Again, there's that missional thrust. Okay, God, you've fed us. You've been good to us. You've taught us. We've been together. We've sang your praises. Now send us out into the world to do your will, do your mission. Okay? That's the shape of the liturgy. Now, our liturgy has a rhythm, which I, this is funny in my head because I'm thinking Anglicans got rhythm. And I'm like, I don't know, man. <laughs> we need some rhythm. Uh, our liturgy has a, not only a shape, but a rhythm to it. There is um, a call and response, right? It's not just me up here and I talk and you can sit there and, uh -huh, uh -huh, and maybe sing a few songs. There's an interaction. There's a call and response. We're walking out a relationship with each other, right, fellow believers, and with the Lord as we gather to serve. So we have this call and response. And it's not only just you and I interacting. We certainly are. But there's also a call of Christ and our response to him that's an interaction that goes back and forth. So there's like this ebb and flow. There's this back and forth call and response. Uh, and if you want the fancy name for it, some people call it the ordo. Ordo. The ordo is the deeper pattern of worship in any Christian tradition, even non-liturgical ones. So there's an inherent rhythm in our worship. There's a call and response, call and response, interaction, back and forth. You and I, uh, God and you and I goes all different directions, okay? Okay, let's, let's completely change gears, and I want to look at the liturgy in a different way. And this feels appropriate, it feels very Eucharistic. Um, I also think of the liturgy, especially a, in a Eucharistic liturgy like um, a Sunday morning one like today, I think of it as like a feast, it's like this big, splendid feast, God feeding his people. So think of a Thanksgiving feast. Can you all kind of hold that, that picture in your head? Think of that. Uh, and I want, you, I want to tell you something that holds true of liturgy with this analogy. You are what you eat. <laughs> you are what you eat. That holds true here. Spiritually speaking, so true. But this feast, this Thanksgiving feast, if you want to think of it that way, it is a sign of God's overabundant provision. Okay? God's overabundant provision. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that you cannot possibly eat it all in one setting. You can't do it. It's just too much. You can't drink in every single thing that comes your way on a sun Sunday morning worship service. Did you know that? Some of you feel guilt over that. You don't need to feel guilt. It's just, it's, it's intended to be overabundant. It's intended to be more than you can possibly take in. That's sort of natural. You're going to find certain elements that speak to you, that feed you. You're going to go, man, that one song, that just straight to the heart. Or you're going to say, ah, oh, communion every week. God meets me every week in communion. Or, gosh, that one specific prayer that I heard, that really touched my heart and spoke to me. Or something in the sermon just cut right to the quick for me. The liturgy is like a massive feast in which we're all invited to taste and see that God is so good, that the Lord is good. It's more than you can take in and consume in one setting. It is. God is generous, but the Holy Spirit will give you what you need. But the question is, do you come hungry on Sunday morning? Do you show up hungry 
or you just show up to church, right? Remember, you are what you eat. You are what you eat. So, uh, this feast is abundant. It's more than you can take in. Uh, you can't catch it all. Uh, catch as much as you can. Make sense? You know, it's all you can eat, but nobody can eat everything. Uh, second part here. Let me just, this is a really important observation. So I want y'all to, to hear this really well. Even in the midst of God's abundant, gracious offering to us, we all have our preferences, right? Uh, in food and in worship, right? We have our preferences. Maybe one of you likes the basics, man. You're just like, give me the turkey, give me the dressing, give me the stuffing and gravy. I'm good. That's me, all right? Give me the basics. I'm good. Others of you are going, oh, hold, hold, time out. Where's the pumpkin pie and the real whipped cream? Fair enough. All right. Others of you, hey, I got to have my green bean casserole. I got to have that funky green jello stuff, which there's a name for, but I don't know it. Okay. Some of you want that. We all have our preferences. We have our likes and our dislikes. And the same is true of liturgy and worship. It just is. It's a fact. Some of you have strong opinions on liturgy and worship style. Right? Often music is where that, uh, those things really uh, come to a head and become most evident. We all have our preferences, and there are many reasons for that. Some of those reasons are good. Some of those reasons aren't so good. Some of those are neither here nor there. We all have our preferences in worship as in food. Can I beg you to hold those differences loosely and graciously? Okay? Because they are preferences, which means they're shaped by things like culture. They can be incredibly arbitrary, okay? So hold those things graciously and loosely. Keep this in mind. In this abundant feast, God feeds all of his people, all of his people, not just me and the food that I like. Guess what? If this liturgy is set up just what works for me, some of you are going to get left out. <laughs> and if it's set up some of the way you guys would want it set up, guess what? Other people left out. This feast has to feed everybody. This is for all of God's people, not just for me and what I tend to prefer or favor. Okay? It's bigger than that. It's meant to feed all of you, has a wider scope and wider aim than our personal preferences, likes and dislikes, etc., etc. There's something here for everybody. Okay? And I don't mean that in a consumeristic way. There's something here for everyone, and it is the abundance of God to feed us in that way. So our liturgical form of worship bears that out. All right. Last little point under church, uh, liturgy as a feast. When taken as a whole, like all our liturgies from, if you take it through Advent and then go to Epiphany and then Lent and then da, 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 if you carry all this out, everything is there to nourish your spiritual life, to foster your spiritual growth. Uh, it is there for you. That's the great promise and the brilliance of the church calendar. But here's the deal. You have to invest in it. You have to follow the themes of the church seasons and be aware of the shifts and what they're about. You have to actively engage in worship, right? You can't just show up and be on autopilot. Guess what? You're not going to get much out of worship if you're on autopilot. You just won't. I promise you that. You got to come hungry if you want to grow. You got to come hungry. It's intended as part and parcel of your spiritual formation, the church calendar. We're real intentional about that and how the liturgies shift during the seasons and the different themes they focus on each time. Again, I go back to Lex Randy, Lex Credendi, Lex Vivendi. As we pray or worship, so we believe, so we live. So it's important. Okay. Uh-oh. We missing something? We have a second slide after that, hopefully. Okay. All right, cool. We'll start here.
And for those of you who are going, dude, you're overloading me with liturgy, this is the last slide. <laughs> bear with me. Hang with me, I should say. Don't bear with me. Hang with me. Okay. This takes me to our specific liturgical approach here at King of Kings. We carefully adhere to everything I have just described. Everything. Okay? The ministry of word and sacrament. Absolutely. Following the enduring shape of the liturgy that's been carried forth across history. Gathering, word, table sending. Absolutely. We use the 2019 Book of Common Prayer as the template for everything that we do. We do. But what about the specifics of our King of Kings liturgy? Some of you are going, what do you mean? I'm glad to tell you. Um, in an early preface to the Book of Common Prayer, Cranmer advised clergy to contextualize the liturgy based off their specific ministry contexts. Um, and as long as, obviously, word and sacrament were maintained, the shape was maintained, the liturgy and the theology wasn't monkeyed with. So that's a given. But to, to put it succinctly, you tailor the liturgy to your cultural context. Okay? That means you make some additions, some omissions, some small edits. Okay? So that's kind of the approach. So that's contextualization. So how do I contextualize our liturgies? Well, there's a point of identity. Uh, is this an American liturgy or is it global? What do you think? What would you guess? I hear one vote American. Global? It's a trick question. It's a both hand. <laughs> but a bum. Both hand. So, of course, our liturgy is American. We're an American church, okay? The Book of Common Prayer, common was always in the language of the people, in the culture of the people, okay? So, of course, we're American. We're also a global church. That blessing we do at the, end of the, uh, at the end of the service, all of our problems, we stand at the cross of Christ, all of our difficult. Guess what? That's not American. That's Kenyan. That's from the Anglican Church of Kenya. Our confession, the ones that we've been using lately, not every, all during the year, uh, is African. So, why would it be important to affirm that we're both American and global? Well, uh, if we're not global, let me put it this way. We tend to get a little too parochial, a little too provincial, and a little too narrow. We forget that we are part of a larger movement and a larger body of Christ that is global. So some of these pieces that I'll bring in from different church, Anglican churches, it's just to remind us of the bigger picture. So it's a both and. We're American and we're global. Okay, That's part of our identity. What about the language and liturgy? Um, what do you vote for, formal or conversational? Yes. Hey, okay, I see a pattern. You guys, uh, see, you're onto my game. Okay, fine, fine, fine. Uh, there's a formality in some of the language in our liturgy, and some of this is acknowledging that God is holy, God is high and lifted up, God is other than us, he's transcendent, right? The mightiness, the holiness of God. And some of the formal language reflects that in a good way. Now, if we only have that, you also have a God that feels pretty hard to relate to or that you can actually talk to. So the conversational or more casual language is there to remind us that this is a God that we can know, can speak to in our own words. This is the Christ, our brother, that idea, the idea of God with us, God for us, the eminence of God. So there are both formal and conversational elements in our liturgy. 
to reflect that. Let's go to the next one. Now, kind of, you guys have spoiled, I kind of spoiled the surprise. You know the answer to this. So is our liturgy, is it ancient or is it contemporary? <laughs> it's both. Okay, thank you. Drum roll. Uh, I would say if we default in one direction or the other, if we go, we're only going to be ancient or only going to be contemporary, guess what? That actually, uh, those are both puts us in a position of irrelevance, I think. If we're only ancient, we we can't necessarily engage in the issues of our day and age. And it doesn't acknowledge the fact that God and the Holy Spirit is actually working the church right now. What's he doing right now? Something to pay attention to, isn't it? But if we're only contemporary, right, if we sort of fight for relevance and that's kind of the drum we bang, we lose the wisdom of the past, all right? We're trying to constantly recreate the wheel. So we need to be both ancient and contemporary in how we go about our liturgy. Uh, orientation. I didn't know what to call this, so that's what I called it. Uh, are we high church or are we low church? We're kind of both, which means we're middle church. Okay. Yes. Uh, high church. Uh, for The smells and bells. Uh, the chanting. Uh, the vesting. The, the uh, more ritualistic practices. Those tend to be more high church practices. Guess what? We employ some of those because there's a goodness there. Uh, there's also some good things about the low church tradition. There tends to be a simplicity, uh, an economy, a clarity there. They're sort of essentialists liturgically. They sort of trim the fat, right? Anything they don't need, they, they, they don't use. So guess what? We actually pull from that tradition too because there's no, you don't have to choose. <laughs> you really don't because there are good things in both. Why not take the best of what we have and put them into one place? So we're sort of low, middle, middle-ish church, you know? Um, that's our orientation. And that really, to my knowledge, hasn't changed a whole lot since I've come, but yeah, that's kind of where we lie. I want you to know why that is. <clears throat> Last thing, and we will end here. So are we a contemplative church or are we a charismatic church? Both. We're both, Anita says, and she gets a gold star. Ding, now. Uh, if you were around for the annual meeting a couple weeks ago, we talked about growing in the Holy Spirit. So I think we're very much called to be both. I think the contemplative part, which is sort of self-evident, I'm not going to speak a lot to that. Um, I think we, we do fairly well at that. The charismatic, we've got room to grow in that. We have room to grow. So uh, can liturgy be spirit-filled? Who's experienced spirit-filled liturgy? Raise your hand. Just right on. Yes, 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 absolutely. Can you have the charismatic and the contemplative in the same worship service? Yeah, absolutely you can. That's what we're aiming for. We're going to grow in the Holy Spirit as a church. But let me give you the sobering truth. I've just told you a lot about liturgy, okay? More than you probably ever wanted to know. That's fine. But let me give you the sobering truth. You can have, if there is such a thing, the perfect liturgy. You can and you know what? You can still be a dead and joyless church. You can have the perfect liturgy and do all the stuff I've just outlined. And just, oh, it's just perfect. It's great. It hits all the marks. Da, da, da. Guess what? You can still be a dead church. You can still be a dead church. How is that? Because without the Holy Spirit, it's just words and songs. Without the Holy Spirit, we're just doing church. God has to show up, <laughs> right? God has to show up. That's how worship happens. 
Without the Holy Spirit, it's just words and songs. It's just doing church, folks. And I don't know about you, if that's all we're doing, let's close it down. Like, I don't want to do that. I want us to worship in spirit and in truth. The scaffolding, if you will, the liturgy is kind of scaffolding. And as good as it might be, the Holy Spirit's got to bring it to life. <laughs> the Holy Spirit has to bring it to life. Think of, uh, you guys remember the story of Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones? That story, you know, it's bizarre. Uh, you know, prophesy over these bones, you know, that they may live. The whole point is the Spirit of the Lord has to enter those bones and reassemble them to make them alive. God has to show up. <laughs> we need to expect and believe that he'll come, else the liturgy is just, eh, right? So that's why I focus so much on come hungry, come hungry, come ready to worship, come to worship expectantly. I mean, what if you came, what if your drive here to church, or even it begins on Saturday, earlier in the week, what's God going to do this week at church? I wonder, what things are God going to do at church this week? I can't wait to see. What if that were our heart's posture? I think we might uh, experience a more lively and spirit-filled liturgy if we were to come expectantly and to see what God would do. Okay? All right. Let's pray.